Hello and welcome to I'm a Fan of That, a podcast about all things fandom told through objects, stories, and studies with a bit of silliness along the way. Your hosts on this journey are pop culture writer, journalist, and cosplay expert Holly Swinyard and myself, Viviana Simos, a public anthropologist and pop culture academic with a PhD in religion and popular culture. Join us as we wander down the incredible and intriguing path into fan culture, its history, the people who make it up, and the way that we look at this ever-growing part of our society. Fair warning, we may talk about some adult themes, use some adult language, and possibly get a little bit nerdy about the whole thing. You have been warned. And welcome to I'm a fan of that. And if this sounds weird, there's a reason. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, my name is Ollie Swinyard, and I am a pop culture writer and author. And the person giggling at me, like <laughs> hysterically. I'm Viviana Simos, and I'm a pop anthropologist. And I'm looking at Holly wearing, I guess, half fangs now that one of them half- has fallen out. <laughs> Uh, and the reason I have uh, no fangs in now so that I can actually talk is because today's object is uh, a set of vampire fangs because we're going to talk about Anne Rice's interview with a vampire and everything that goes with it. Vivian, what do you know about the interview with a vampire? So, I was trying to think of this this morning and I'm pretty, I haven't personally read it or any in the series um, but I think my one of my sisters has. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure, unless I'm mistaking it with another vampire sexy series. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of them because there there, there are a lot, lot of them. them. But I'm pretty sure it was Anne Rice. I'm like ninety percent <laughs> sure. Um, so I I saw it being consumed near me, but that was that's the extent of of my experience. I also haven't seen the movie or anything. Really? So I'm very. I know the the gist because, like, like we were saying, it's kind of similar to a lot of a lot of things. And Rice really did have. I I recognize had a huge impact also on urban fantasy and the the way. Yeah, that a I lot would of say her stories are being sculpted. A, a lot of the reason why vampire romance or <clears throat> vampire novels or whatever are kind of in the modern era are the way they are is probably because of Anne Rice. I think she had quite a substantial impact on on how we see vampires in uh you know because you can kind of see it in like the underworld series and Mm. even twilight and stuff like the same kind of that idea of the very sensual sexy vampire um i mean obviously that goes that's vampire law right yeah i was about to say i mean there's there's hints of it also in like bram stoker but um i think anne rice was kind of responsible for kicking it up quite a quite a big notch oh yeah absolutely like i think making the 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 untouchable but deeply kind of erotic side of it is it, in the nineties and everything was definitely it, it it's very nineties isn't it like I've, if anybody has ever seen the film or read the books it it's got a very specific <laughs> tone um, but there's also been the new series which came out this year beginning of this year uh, which has been very well received and I really enjoyed so uh, it was uh, oh, I'm gonna say HBO possibly uh i can't remember there's too many streaming services nowadays i don't know um uh they changed a bit of the story they said it in the 1920s rather than uh sort of uh, i don't know 19 uh, 1800s france i think the original set 
terrible of me not to remember that. But they kind of shifted it all. They changed the dynamics a little bit, uh, which I really liked. I thought it was a very good modern take on on the story. And really queer. Like, really... They went there. They really went there, which the films and the books kind of don't... In the TV show, they went, yeah, so these two, they're definitely a couple. Yeah, cool. Uh, (laughs) Which I thought was very good. Uh, I was like, okay, cool. We can do that now. Excellent. I mean, I haven't... I read the first book and I think I was too young for them. I was... 12 or 13 and so I never I didn't actually read the rest and until I kind of engaged with it with the film and the tv show and stuff and I have a lot of friends who it's their favorite thing <laughs> you know uh I'm shocked that gothy cosplayers are really into interview of vampires <laughs> let's be honest you're kind of an interview of vampire person or you're a matrix person and I kind of feel like the twain shall never meet um it's I, I don't know why it's this weird thing it's like one or the other and I don't know how that's happened um but yeah, so one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about it, though, isn't specifically the books and stuff, though they're very good and very interesting and there's a lot of stuff going on with those. Or the film, or the TV show, or any of the actual media that is Interview with, Vamp- interview with the Vampire. Uh, it's actually to do with uh, the fandom and the way that Anne Rice herself dealt with her fandom because I think it's gone down in like historical infamy within fan communities that has even if people don't realize it has like rolling effects to this day with the way that fan fanfic particularly uh and fandom deal with fan fiction and that's something that i think people i see people coming up through fandom who have kind of forgotten or don't or never knew about this and they're like why why do people put say i do not own these characters on their fan fictions like isn't that obvious and it's like oh my sweet summer child <laughs> you know <laughs> So I think we're going to take a little bit of a journey into some uh, fandom history and talk about that and some stuff that allegedly happened that I can't, nobody has ever come forward and brought categorical proof of forward. So we're talking a lot of uh, sort of, I don't want to say hearsay because that's not necessarily true, but alleged. it's a lot of alleged and urban myth within fan communities and stuff like that, which there are little little things that kind of make you go, hmm about so it's quite an interesting story um and i'm excited to tell it so this all happens in like 2000 the millennium 2001 when i was a young baby child uh of (laughs) seven seven ish i don't know seven or eight uh which means you must have also been that old and therefore we had no idea what was going on in the internet thank goodness (laughs) terrifies me that there are children that young on like tiktok and things like what are you doing um yeah that's a conversation for another time <laughs> yeah exactly but we we were living in ignorance whereas going on on places like usenet if people know what usenet is the sort of pre-internet forums and all that kind of stuff because the well, old people... people did have the will people even remember or i guess the young the younger generation Will, will they know about, like, AOL chat rooms? Oh, no, I don't know. Oh. Do, we, do I have to explain what AOL chat rooms are in this this episode? We might we might have to... We'll do it really fast, because I'm sure our audience okay. is probably not that young, let's be honest. Yeah. But um, That's true. So, <laughs> just in case. In the 19- <laughs> so, pre the internet, when there wasn't the internet, some really smart people at some universities and things like that came up with an idea of connecting everyone through computer systems that was through uh, sort of 
it wasn't the World Wide Web. It wasn't that open. It was sort of like you had to sign in and know how to get there. And what you ended up with was little chat rooms where people would discuss predominantly nerdy, nerdy shit and science and all that kind of stuff. But also the other type of nerdy, nerdy, nerdy shit, which is fandom culture, because of course those two things will be forever intertwined. Um, And this was called initially, I think Usenet must have been one of the earliest ones. I I think think there's there's MUD as well. And then AOL. Uh, And AOL is probably the one that most people who are our sort of age and maybe a bit older uh, probably know about because that was sort of the influx of people who weren't strictly academics or tech geeks kind of into the online sphere. And AOL chat rooms were, I want to say closed spaces. They weren't like Discord. You didn't have to know like a password or something to get in. But some of them needed. Um, But you kind of had to search for them through newsletters or links through from other places and all that kind of stuff to get to them. Or set your own up and they were essentially Google like... Google didn't exist yet. <laughs> yeah, no, there was no search engines. You had to kind of jump from site to site or somebody had to tell you about something. Um, it was all very like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, do you want to come and hang out in my forum? Uh, <laughs> which still definitely happens. But yep. <laughs> it was a bit kind of... I would describe them a bit more like... Um, I don't want to say... They're not like Reddit because Reddit's a bit more of a free-for-all. They, had, they were more organised than that. I don't know if... They are like Discord, right? Like Discord, I would say, with the boards is the most similar. Discord's probably the closest similarity mm. that we have. But it's if if Discord wasn't always needing a password or an invite link yeah. to join. Exactly. Yeah. And people would go in there and also a bit more kind of unlike Discord, people would, even if you were in a main forum, you would probably have your forum boards that you hung out on. You didn't necessarily bother looking on the others because it... They weren't the ones, you know, it was like a whole fandom space, but they were predominantly, you'd be like, oh, my friends hang out in this board, so I'm going to go in that one. Um, or at least that was my experience of it, very end of the sort of the journey with live journal and things like that. Because I'm not old enough to have actually been on AOL forums, but I have older friends who have described them to me. Um, and they were pretty cool places. And one of the things that I think people don't necessarily realise is actually how many creators used to go in and like see what the fans were talking about like with little secret hidden accounts and things like that which i don't know if that's cute or fun or a little creepy but it could be either <laughs> uh and so a lot of people this would be where they would share their fan fictions this is share- people sharing theories talking about stuff uh all that kind of thing that you see now on tumblr and tiktok and discord a bit on twitter but less so um this is where that was happening, right? It was all... And each fandom kind of was locked into its own board. You didn't necessarily cross the streams. Though, of course, some people did. But you would go to the interview of a vampire board. Or you would go with... Go to the Star Trek board. Or you, you know... Or you'd go to the Star Trek Next Generation very specific thing board. You know? Yeah. <laughs> because Star Trek's huge. And there'd even be, like, specific forums just for shipping certain characters and stuff like that. Like, there definitely were very niche boards because of course there were um but yeah so that's how aol and usenet worked and you also had newsletters through this so like email style newsletters uh so that's early internet fandom in a nutshell ish (laughs) i'm sure somebody's done a much better breakdown of it and maybe we'll do one at some point because it it is interesting but it's very it's very technical i think Um, But yeah, so this is all happening in the late 90s, uh, well, all the way through the 90s and into the 2000s. And particularly in the 2000s, people are on LiveJournal, and LiveJournal is still going, but I think it's had... I think now it doesn't really... I think it's there, but people don't really use it because Mm. 
uh, stuff happened that, again, we're not getting into here because it's way too complicated. Um, and I don't want to go down that path either. But it, let's just say it sort of died a bit of a death, but it's sort of just carrying on. Basically, I think people, authors particularly, creators of shows and stuff, like I said, they were coming into these boards. They were aware of their fans and they were more able to access them. And so a lot of people had a lot more, you know, uh, it's relatively well known that like Terry Pratchett used to have uh, dummy accounts that he would go in and ask questions about things or like get people's opinions about stuff uh, in regards to like research he was doing or to like he just kind of listen to what fans were saying about stuff so that he could get feedback without it being like a review yeah. <laughs> or people being like, oh my God, it's Terry Pratchett. Um, and the same is true, like, the X-Men writers used to go into the forums and things and just hang out and, and stuff like that. So lots of people were doing this in order to engage more with their fan base. But the reason we're going to talk about Anne Rice is because she she really didn't like it. And for whatever reason, she basically destroyed her own fandom through actions that have allegedly happened through her and her lawyers. So we've used the word lawyers, which I think means that we're going into <laughs> interesting territory. Um, because in around 2000, the interview of a vampire fandom sort of just vanished. It just disappeared. It, it basically stopped existing online um, unless you knew exactly how to find it with certain literal passwords, literally being invited into spaces, all this sort of stuff. It just stopped existing. Um, and that was due to the fact that allegedly uh, Anne Rice and her legal team had started contacting fanfic writers, board uh, admins, uh, fandom organisers, all these sorts of people with uh, cease and desist orders and threatening them with legal action over fanfiction being posted and fanfiction being written including revealing that they knew people's work and home addresses. Or at least this is what the people who were contacted were saying was happening to them. <clears throat> and they were basically being threatened with, we are going to take you to court if you don't stop writing fanfiction and take it down immediately. And the Usenet board, which was called Black Rose, yeah, the Black Rose, basically vanished as if it had never existed. Uh, and it was just that sort of thing just hadn't happened before. No, no, that how does that happen? You know, like the fandom that up until now just existed and was fine and just going along suddenly just is gone. You know. So basically, in two thousand in April, and we were talking about this beforehand. I have double checked. This statement still exists on Anne Rice's website. It's still there. You can go and look at it now. And it says, "I do not allow fan fiction." The characters are copyrighted. It upsets me terribly to even think about fan fiction with my characters. I advise, I advise my readers to write your own original stories with your own characters. This, it is absolutely essential that you respect my wishes. I have never, ever seen any kind of creator make this sort of statement about fan works, ever. Like, I know that some people just don't like it and don't engage with it, but I've never seen anybody make a statement basically being like stop stop doing this mm. to people who are fans of yours you know then i think it was about a few days later oh yeah 
So the end of that month, in the beginning of May, uh, the archive that had been holding all of the fan fiction and stuff on this on this forum, this Usenet forum, suddenly doesn't exist anymore. And there is a note in its place just on the screen that reads, this page no longer exists in the public forum. Note, there is nothing here. No specs, which is what they called fan fictions. No stories, no nothing. Now maybe, hypothetically, if you had the password and the handshake, you could get into a private forum where private citizens could share private words with each other without being told by authors with too much money to waste that their first, uh, waste that their first amendment is taken away and freedom of speech no longer exists. But that is just hypothetical. So, you know, it's a bit catty, I agree. Yeah. I think it's a bit like... Oh, yeah, that's a very, it's very clearly people who are pissed off replying to somebody who's pissed them off. The fact that a fandom was driven underground by the people they were a fan of, I think is astounding. Like, the thing that happened out of this was basically you can't find interview of vampire fan fiction from this time at all. It's all gone. It's all disappeared deep into these forums and archives and all this sort of stuff. Some, I think, is starting to appear back up on things like Archive of Our Own now that... Um, Unfortunately, and it is a big shame that Anne Rice passed away last year. Um, you know, uh, it's a massive shame. She was an incredible writer. So, you know, that's very sad. Uh, but obviously for the fans, it has meant a certain amount of freedom that they don't feel like they're being watched over all the time and not being allowed to do things. I don't know how the estate are going to go forward with it. Mm. Um, but uh, the following year, so in 2001... Anne Rice's lawyers sent a letter to fanfiction.net, specifically the website, demanding that all works based on uh, Anne Rice's properties be removed from the site, and they were. It was just gone. So, obviously, people took these letters seriously. They took these things seriously. Uh, That is one of the things that we do know, that those fanfictions all vanished, and there was an announcement made that it was going to happen, so people could grab them before they you know if they didn't have them saved on hard drives and things like that so yeah within a year essentially this entire fandom its forums its uh chat rooms it's all its fanfic on other sites on other archives was pretty much gone and they started using codes and hidden phrases and all this sort of stuff to kind of talk about it and it's one of those things that i think a lot of people just don't know happened and it's the definitely the reason why other fandoms started writing things like, I do not own these characters, this is a work of, this is a fan work, all this kind of stuff, that you might not see so much anymore, but you definitely used to see for a long time during the 2000s and 2010s on fan fictions, to be mm. like, well, these are copyrighted characters, I don't own them. You know, either in the tags or in the notes at the beginning of the fic, or there'd be a little thing at the end, you know, people would put that on there because they were afraid that this would happen to them. Uh, and I think it's a massive, massive shame that um, this happened because of one, one writer, you yeah. know? I, I have a legal question that I recognize yes. you, you might not know the answer to because we, as we said at the beginning of this, we are writers, we are not lawyers, <laughs> mm-hmm. but... Because I, I do video essays over on Incidental Mythology on YouTube. Go check it out. But um, I therefore have to deal with a lot of copyright issues. Because when you're talking about a movie, you use clips from the movie. And then the people who make the movie are like, I found clips. And you're like, yeah, but it's not what you think it is. Um, 
but basically I have therefore known quite extensively where my fair use lies so I can defend my use of it. How does fan fiction work? Because I know that that's quite obviously it's very different than commentary for educational purposes, which is what I do. Yeah. But um, is there so, something within yeah. fair use that fan fiction could fall under? Fan fiction, as long as you are not selling it, as long as you are not making money off it, mm. and I think even as long as you aren't making like a living off of it, it's it's a muddy area. I'm not a lawyer. Is fair use. And people who were involved in this particular thing at the time said that if they had had the money and they weren't like so shocked and afraid, they really would have taken, they would have fought the claim because actually they don't think that, again, this is all things that people were saying in the forums and the boards and all this other stuff. So how much of it is real, true, what happened, you know, all this sort of stuff. We don't have the actual documents and things. Um, So we're taking everything with a pinch of salt. Um, but obviously something did happen. But people have said since the time that actually they would have taken her to court, but they didn't. They would have been like, "All right, do it. You right, fine." But nobody had the money. Nobody had. You know, these are all yeah. And people I, who I, would, you know, I don't know how things work because obviously with the internet, it's you're talking to people from all sorts of different places, and in the United States, even different states have different laws mm-hmm. on the way that certain things work. But most of the time. Um, if you say go to a lawyer, I know it's too late now, but if you go to a lawyer, uh, if someone else is getting hit with this now, this is, yeah. so my only sound legal advice from a non-lawyer that I will give you (laughs) is you can go to a lawyer and typically if they were to take, say, Anne Rice to court for it, if they win, then you will have Anne Rice pay for your lawyer fees. Mm. So it won't actually come Mm. out of you. And most lawyers won't sign up for that if they think they won't win, uh, which is a really good way to ensure that somebody who can't afford it, but that the lawyer believes actually does have a good shot and is in the right, they can actually help them out and still get paid for their work because yeah. they're getting the rich person to pay for it. The other thing I wonder is whether, because this was all happening in two Talk to a lawyer, though. Yeah, talk to <laughs> Sorry. a lawyer. Or a solicitor. Yeah. Talk to somebody. Um but yeah, I wonder whether it was almost unheard of. Like, I wonder whether... Yeah, I mean, I could imagine time, it being... Yeah, that it would have been... Yeah. And that possibly, again, like at the, in, in the time... I managed to just knock my desk, which is great. Uh, at the time, people were just... They just didn't know what to do. You know, if mm. this sort of thing, you know, showed up at your door, at your house, in your email inbox, it's going to be really scary. Um, and again, you know, we don't have the documentation, so we don't know exactly what happened. We just know that stuff happened. Yeah. Uh, and I will continue to put the word allegedly in here yes, because we, we, we don't can't... want to deal with the lawyers as much as I was just saying that. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, like, you know, that while it's very clear that something did go down, we don't know exactly what it was. And we only have the words and the statements of the people who it allegedly happened to, to, uh, you know, and these paper trails of the fact that fanfiction.net took down all the fix and the the forums disappeared and there are these kind of very catty petty notes between author and fans and 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 things like that that they do exist so something clearly happened but exactly what and how bad it was obviously nobody but the people it happened to knows but i i wonder how if you just you know you're just a little fan doing your thing on the internet and your little fandom board like yay this is fun um 
and that stuff starts happening, how much you just you want to just hide in a corner. Yeah, and you, you don't want to. Might it's be a very different world now, you know? Yeah, for people who are, if we do have younger listeners who are not remembering these days, it might be worth noting that nowadays when you do a lot of different things online, there is a very easy trace to figure out who it is, either through email. I know there's certain websites where you actually have to put in your address and uh, things like that. It makes it, you can still get around it. I'm sure people who are much more intelligent mm-hmm. than me can figure out ways to stay anonymous online. But with a little bit of elbow grease, people can figure out who people are fairly easily. Um, but that's not really how it was back then. Back then, it was yeah. way harder to find. It took a lot more elbow grease. And so I could imagine, yeah, that if it did show up at your door, that's not going to be as as easy to trace. And therefore, it would be be very scary. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, I'm working off the allegedly. statements of... Allegedly. I'm working off the statements of people who uh, claim this happened. I'm working off uh, things that are now 23 years old. Yeah. And there is no paper trail for. So, like I said, we take it all with a pinch of salt and we look at it as a urban myth and a tale of fandom versus creator. You know, like what could happen. Though, so, what I find really fascinating is the fact that they didn't disappear entirely right no not at all and they i went underground it shows a really weird relationship that people have with fiction and we can kind of relate this in a very different way <laughs> to jk <laughs> rowling um and i say that because i recognize that anne rice i don't know anne rice i don't know what you know her understanding of trans people were so i don't want to necessarily lump her in the same exact kind of category um however you know this idea of combative natures between uh the understanding and belief of the author versus the understanding and beliefs of the fan base and how you know on one hand you could easily just be like oh we'll just don't do harry potter you know okay well we'll just Mm -hmm. stop caring about interview with vampire and rice scared the shit out of me i don't want to partake in this anymore and you just completely back out but the love of the fiction is somehow stronger than the dislike or fear of of the creator that you continue to do it anyway despite that yeah exactly like these people did not stop loving these books despite what happened and that must be very different like i i feel that you're right the harry potter fans must be having a very difficult time of it right now because it's hard to be a fan of something where the creator is doubling down in ways that you you just don't agree with or are scary to you or a danger to you Mm -hmm. you know like particularly with jk rowling there are people who are queer and trans fans who she must feel like a danger to or or must you know is definitely giving money to organizations that do want to. yeah exactly and i think again i don't really want our podcast to get sued by anybody so allegedly (laughs) you know that's great (laughs) allegedly um but i kind of feel like this must have been a very similar situation where you're being actively targeted i guess or at least feels like you're being targeted by uh by somebody who you can't who's a lot more powerful than you has a lot more money than you is literally the creator of the thing you're there to be a fan of you know the literal sort of godhead figure of any fandom is the creator right if you're if you're into fandom in that way uh that must be a really difficult thing to deal with like how do you square that up within yourself that i i love this thing but this person is hurting me you know Mm -hmm. it it must be very hard and like 
because for me personally, I I'm no longer a fan of Harry Potter. I, I used to be when I was a kid. I was I was a big fan, um, and it had a kind of a little bit of a small renaissance in my in my twenties. I can live without it, you know, personally. Uh, but for other people, that's not the way case. You know, that's not the way. I've lived in Star Wars land for too long. <laughs> ah. I I feel so I I fall under this camp and I feel very very strongly towards death of the author and I I've heard it used towards J.K. Rowling in a way that I disagree with, um, which is oh well who cares then I'll keep partaking and buying stuff anyway which is not how I use it, um, how I use it is that the fiction stands apart in the sense that I can. I mean, I'm not a huge Harry Potter fan, but I'm just going to keep using it as an example because I think, like you said, I think it's a really good, um, at least contemporary comparison for people who mm. don't know Anne Rice and weren't around 20 years ago. Um, but basically that when you create something and you put it out in the world, you no longer own it. And I, I yeah. personally believe, I mean, I think that it's good for you to own it in the sense that you get money for your services um, and that's, but that's kind of your extension of it. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. of this in, in most senses of anything, musicians, everything, you can then kind of, once it's out there, the people, the way that people take it is the way that people take it. And there's, I mean, we could probably do a whole story on the creator of Pepe the Frog. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I wrote about that for The Guardian. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a <laughs> super interesting story, but... It sucks. I mean, that's kind of the the bad. We keep talking about people who are taking down fan fiction or who are transphobic, which are obviously things that we strongly, you know, disagree with that stance. But here's somebody on the other side who is, by all, as far as I'm aware, is a, is a nice person. And yeah. their creation ended up being used by white supremacists. And that suck. it sucks. But unfortunately, yeah. if we're going to allow it one way... So I kind of, in one way, I kind of see where Anne Rice is coming from in the sense of you don't know what people are using it for. And I, if I created something, I would be very uncomfortable if my characters were being used to substantiate white supremacy or transphobia or any other kind of hated uh, and hatred that's going out. Yeah. But at the same time, if I'm going to celebrate trans people using my stories to demonstrate how proud they are of themselves and to celebrate being trans then i unfortunately have to also be okay with the fact that it might be used in the opposite way and i can try to make lots of stances and lots of commentary if i don't agree with this but it it is a tricky it is a tricky situation isn't it it really is and i kind of feel like particularly in the situation we're talking about i think anne rice as a writer felt a lot of ownership, mm. rightly or wrongly so, over these characters in a way that is unusual, I would say, for even like writers and creators and things like that. Uh, there is uh, a whole thing about her having a ongoing like tit-for-tat battle with a guy who bought the parking lot that Lazat was meant to die in in the books in New Orleans because it's a real place, and he built like a restaurant on it. Uh, like a really, like I think it's a diner or something and they had this thing, ongoing thing in like ads in the newspaper where she would write as Lazat, like against this guy um, again, this exists you know, you can see it, it's really weird um, so clearly she felt a certain 
a very distinct ownership of these stories in a way that a lot of people maybe maybe don't I don't know I mean other writers might I, I have yet to see another writer kind of have quite so much of a this is my thing and people can't spoil it kind of feeling over their books they sort of uh sort of go I've written the thing enjoy it let it go um yeah I, but... again I think Rowling's probably pretty pretty close Mm-hmm. Um, I know that she's gotten quite upset at, uh, some, somebody wrote a fan fiction that was a retelling of Harry Potter as Harriet Potter, where Harry those, yeah. uh, is a trans woman, um, which I think is amazing. Uh, and, you know, she's obviously not very happy <laughs> with that one. Um, but I, I, I don't know if it's quite to the same legal extent, but, yeah. um, you know, I think her constant tweets of trying to rewrite things and actually if you look at this i wasn't racist when really it really was (laughs) you know all of these things um that i i think things like twitter have almost made it harder where she feels the need to keep going where i think if Mm -hmm. Anne rice was on twitter i don't know i don't know how things would have been yeah i don't know I don't know. Yeah, I kind of feel like there is so much around this that like feels very almost like psychological, like the the way that the creator is interacting with fandom and the fans interacting with the creator that is relatively unusual and very much clearly feels to be, at least to me, about who gets to say what these characters, these people that one person has made up can do or are allowed to do, or how they interact with each other and all that kind of stuff, and not being able to kind of necessarily let that go. Um, like, I know that Neil Gaiman has talked about how he he really likes seeing what fans do, or or he doesn't necessarily always engage with it, but he, he obviously interacts with his fans in mm. what he would hope to be a positive way, and likes talking about, like, people's headcanons and all this sort of stuff, and then you've got people like Mark Hamill who are like, well, if you want Luke Skywalker to luke skywalker to be gay he's gay you want him to be trans he's trans you know he's very much said statements along those lines to be like this character is for you the fans he's not for you mean he can be what you want him to be um and so you have like the opposite end of the spectrum where people are very much like let's you that you have ownership of them the fandom has ownership of them because we no longer do you know um and that's a very different perspective so I think it just probably comes down to the fact of like how you perceive your own works. Like, are you putting it out there, basically going, "Oh, I'm I'm giving you what the in, like sort of a window into this world, and my window is the only window," or are you being like, "Hey, here's here's this world that uh you can look at and you can decide what happens next," you know? So I think there is some very different ideas about how these things work. I mean, it's quite interesting because I really like uh the Cthulhu mythos and all that kind of stuff I, I find that kind of horror really fascinating but H.P. Lovecraft terrible human being terrible terrible like the worst like the actual worst uh, and I am loving the reclamation of this world these ideas all this sort of stuff by people and creating like Lovecraft Country which was the amazing just genuinely brilliant and a massive le- reclam- reclamation I can't talk today I have taken the fangs out I promise um <laughs> Uh, of like that stuff by uh, people of color, and because obviously Lovecraft was massive, the West. massive. Like, races. okay, for people who don't know, 
because I've, I've heard somebody was like, well, the time was really racist. He was racist for the time. People mm-hmm, in his mm-hmm. time were like, whoa, dude. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's how oh, yeah. racist he was. Racist people were like, calm down. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting that a lot of what we call the Cthulhu mythos wasn't actually written by him. Mm. He kind of came up with a lot of the ideas and then uh, other writers who worked on weird fiction magazines at the time took the ideas and ran with them. So a lot of the stuff that we talk about, particularly some of the uh, the major characters like Haster and all this sort of stuff were more, cre- and, the, and the Yellow King, they were kind of created by other people and, and worked with, with other people and, and that stuff. It, it's very interconnected. Actually, if you uh, you want to do a deep dive into Cthulhu mythos, you can link all the way from like the original like Cthulhu stuff all the way to the Tarzan books with like characters being mentioned in all of them, which means that Tarzan exists in the Cthulhu universe. There you go. Uh, I think that's really funny. Um, and they're all kind of working off people like H.G. Uh, Wells anyway. So a lot of this stuff comes... It's all very mishy-mashy. And I kind of think that particularly in regards to H.P. Lovecraft, who doesn't really have an estate because he died penniless and alone with no children. So, Yay. good. Um, so, like, anything to do with him doesn't necessarily... Like, there's no money being made off it. Like, other people have taken it and reworked it and changed it and, and pulled what they want from different places and all this kind of stuff and are very actively reclaiming parts of the narrative that were used against them. I think that is such... That is death of the author, right? Mm. That is... This, like, if you look at H.P. Lovecraft, you're like, this... This is death of the author in the most broadest and literal way. If no matter how you look at it, it is. Um, yeah, that's I what I was trying to say because I saw somebody using it as like the sense of like, oh, death of the author. So does it matter if I keep giving J.K. Rowling money? And it's like that's that's not really what that means. That's, yeah, no. uh, <laughs> um, and I think that the people who are still partaking in Harry Potter fandom without partaking in the J.K. Rowling financial side of it and who are reading into it the stories that they find in it that are trans substantiating because I, you know, I have a friend who's huge into Harry Potter and has made like huge arguments to me and I don't even care. And so you can imagine with people <laughs> who, who do, um, but huge arguments to me about this one character being a trans character and this huge, great example of, of trans characters that they grew up with. So you know, for that person to to read this and still see it that way and just to say, well, screw her and I'm I'm not going to partake in that. I'm not going to give her money, but I'm still going to love what I saw in this fiction. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by death of the author. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the case. Like I, like I said, I adore the sort of the Cthulhu mythos. I'm not even going to call it the Lovecraft mythos because that's not what it is. It's, it's its own, very much its own beast who is dead but sleeping yeah okay i've i've read a lot um it's my it's one of my favorite things and i i have had to do a lot of kind of thinking about how i want to approach it how i would like to be part of that sort of fanscape and all this sort of stuff and it's kind of ended up with i kind of really like it but i think i'm just gonna do it on my own (laughs) yeah because you know this is fun um and I can engage with the the newer works that are being made by other people. Like I said, Lovecraft Country, amazing, genuinely brilliant. And uh, there have been games coming out recently. And it's quite nice to see when things go out of copyright, the weird stuff that happens. Like there is currently out now a Sherlock Holmes Cthulhu crossover game. And I am so buzzed to play it. It looks amazing. <laughs> Honestly, amazing. Uh, and one of my friends did some of the voices for it. And I'm very proud of him. Oh. Uh, so it's like, yay. Um... But like, 
that kind of stuff that's that's what i would call like you're right that is what i would call death of the author and when you've taken it and you've made it your own thing it's not just oh but i don't like jk rowling but i'm still gonna do the thing and i think in the case of the the vampire chronicles fandom they went and they hid themselves and they Mm. very much became their own little community that wasn't about Anne Rice. It wasn't about her as an author. It was about what they saw these characters being. And they are now able to kind of be like, hey, we still exist. We're still here. You know, they survived it to a greater or lesser extent. Whereas I think other people, you know, if you maybe if you did that nowadays, if this happened nowadays, it would be harder to do so because you couldn't. I don't know. You'd probably go into Discord, but you'd, you'd lose people along the way because people wouldn't be able to get into the Discord, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So it's Which I'm hard. sure they did lose people, but it's it is oh, yeah. really amazing that they were able to, A, go underground effectively, um, which I think is also partly due to the time, but um, mm-hmm. partly also due to their own ingenuity and, and thoughtfulness. And also to yeah. say, in a, in a huge sense, you know, allegedly, screw you. And I'm going yeah. to... <laughs> And we're going to do what we want and love these characters the way we want. And we don't need you to be a part of it, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I think so. And I do I do kind of feel for Anne Rice as a writer and somebody who is currently writing their first like fiction stuff. It You do feel very attached to these characters and you do kind of want to be like, I don't want anyone to... T- it's not touch them. It's kind of like, oh, I, I'm worried about what people might do with them. But at the same time, you kind of have to accept that once... You know, hopefully my my fiction work will get out there, and I won't just be a nonfiction writer forever. Although I mind, I like writing nonfiction, but it would be nice to do something else. Um, <laughs> I'm tired of a grammar. Um, the uh, you know you have to just kind of go. Well, if people like this, then they're gonna have their own ideas, and they won't necessarily match up with my ideas. And that's cool. That's really cool that I'll be able to go, here's some characters, and they'll go, oh, I see this thing in them, and like I didn't see that thing in them, and I wrote them. That's awesome. You know, yeah. like I. I think, like you were saying about your friend too, I'm assuming the character they're talking about is Remus Lupin. That kind of feels like the one. No, no, they were talking about Tonks. Oh, that's also interesting. Because Tonks is able to change themselves. Change, change themselves, yeah. And so they were saying, why not gender? Which I thought yeah, was really fair cool. enough. So yeah. I think it was more of like and a I... ju- uh, gender fluid more than like yeah, full yeah. trans, but mm-hmm. not that they're not full trans. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Binary trans. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. But yeah, so they've read something into that character that clearly J.K. Rowling never intended to write into it. Yeah. You know, into them. Tonks. Whatever. Um, And that, I think, is quite an interesting thing when, in many ways, J.K. Rowling had written other things into these characters that now people are like, actually, that thing you wrote in, we we don't really agree with. You know? So it's kind of, it's quite a, it's quite an interesting way to see the work. Um, like I always think that uh, things like the Terry Pratchett books are really interesting. I will go back to Terry Pratchett a hundred times um, because you've got the dwarves and they're a, they're a race within the Discworld who they only all dwarves are male, right? That's by by the rules of dwarfness, they're all male. Except clearly they're not, right? You have to they they yeah. make more dwarves, but by social standards, everyone uses he him until one dwarf goes. But I don't want to use he him. I want to use she her. And decides that she's a woman. And we don't know. We don't know biologically what Cheery is. We're never told, right? Ever. Just that Cheery is a girl. And she's a woman. And that's how she identifies. And that's what she is. That is a trans storyline. But Terry Pratchett wrote it back in the 80s. Intending it to be a feminist storyline. 
about like take, reclaiming your femininity and all this sort of stuff, right? Uh, or, or at least that's how it was perceived at the time. I, know, I don't know Terry Pratchett's brain. Um, but like to see that as a very clear trans storyline in, in 2023 and that was, ne- was not necessarily the intent back when it was written is really cool mm-hmm. to be like, oh, this, this narrative is about like transness and all this sort of stuff and lots of people see that trans narrative in Cherry and like she is a beacon for trans fans of Terry Pratchett and that's awesome you know and it's very cool um so it's like that sort of stuff I think when you see people read this read more into it is like oh yes that's awesome and I think it was a shame on Anne Rice's part again I don't know her brain I don't know her as a person but I would say it was a shame that she wasn't able to see her fans works and their ideas and their kind of adoration for her her work as something to be praiseworthy and to be excited about and to be like oh cool what you thought this i never thought that wow uh you you've taken that out of you know or you know do you think that part of it is also um because of how early it was also a misunderstanding of what fan fiction was i would i would say probably yes I would imagine that there was a thing of how can how maybe how dare maybe people write my characters without my permission. Um, but fan fiction wouldn't have been that new. Like as much as much as like the online fan fiction and stuff would have been new, and then maybe that's the difference. That actually like being aware of online fa- fan fiction and forums. Yeah, especially because it it might have been that she wasn't aware of fan fiction. I yeah, because we could we've talked before about all sorts of different versions of fan fiction throughout the years mm-hmm. already but um if you're not as aware of that um then yeah it suddenly being more available to you and on your stuff as your entry point could be very disconcerting and i think as somebody who is a professional writer they probably also don't understand writing as a hobby that is not meant mm-hmm. to be the end all of your career, which I know a lot of people yeah. who write as a hobby without any intention of ever publishing because they don't care. Yeah. Um, and it's probably hard to wrap your head around that if you're someone like Anne Rice or myself, who it's like, well, that's my intention is to make this my career. And therefore, why not get things published? Yeah, I suppose now like it- from my own experience, uh, I am coming into a world as a writer, uh, a nonfiction writer currently, and a journalist, but also as somebody who is hoping to write fiction. But I'm coming into that with a deep knowledge of fan culture from being a fan myself, but just mm-hmm. kind of existing, right? That this is something that's going to happen. And I think over the last even five years, people have gone from, oh my goodness, the fans, they write fan fiction. Isn't that so funny? Let's make fun of them a bit. And... Uh, <laughs> I just had a wave of trauma uh, <laughs> to literally I was watching Taskmaster last night where they're like, people write fan fiction about us. Isn't that amazing? You know, they, their reaction to it was it's a bit funny and silly, but actually it was completely like, yeah, cool. That's hilarious. Let's keep doing it. You know, there was no malice in it at all. It was a bit like, okay. And I think that's, that's the reaction that a lot of people have now because people are aware of it. Mm-hmm. But even, I mean, I remember the way that the Sherlock fandom was treated around the time that that show was big. And there was lots of stuff of, like, um, there was that thing with Catelyn Moran where she read out fan fiction to Benedict Cumberbatch and, and Martin Freeman. 
uh, a press conference and it was so uncomfortable, like so uncomfortable. And like nobody liked that, you know, but obviously like it was kind of meant to be funny, but it was just done in a way that was like, oh, you're just making everybody feel bad. Yeah. You know, you're making the fans feel bad. You're making the people in the show feel bad for making fun of their fans uh, or at least being perceived to be making fun of their fans, even if that wasn't the intention. You know, yeah, it was a whole... It was kind of like, oh, no, no. And that was only like, what, five, six, seven years ago? Maybe a bit more than that. Um, And so things have definitely changed. And I would say probably back in 2000, even though fan fiction, the fans knew that fan fiction existed and they were doing it and they were having a nice time doing it. I mean, fan fiction as a thing has existed since, what, the 70s, 80s? Probably, I'm going to go with probably it's a Star Trek thing. It's almost always a Star Trek thing, I mean, we thing, could argue it? that it's been around for a long time. Like we talked about um, yeah, exactly. fan fiction insert with the um, the Bronte oh, sisters. Like the Bronte and... sisters. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I guess if we're using terminology, like, because if you're, like, the term fan fiction yeah. comes from fans writing fiction. And that initially was original fiction of science fiction written by people who were fans. Oh, complicated. Um, it's but... all just definitions, which we've said before, is exactly. all very dependent on how you want to define it. And if you change the definition slightly, then your timeline <laughs> changes di- drastically. Exactly, exactly. And like, uh, what are we talking about? Yeah. So it's like, I, I do wonder whether you're right about that, that it was essentially uh, a reaction to... I didn't know this thing existed and now I do and I don't like it because these are my books and my characters and I don't want people to do the wrong thing with them. Yeah, Um, and I I wonder if it's half doing the wrong thing and half while these people are claiming ownership of this thing and not Mm -hmm. understanding that it's a way of engaging with the fiction in a fun, lighthearted way that it's this idea of like well i wrote this character and you're going well no i wrote them and that's the argument rather than it being i wrote these characters and them going yeah we know (laughs) yeah i think that it's also really interesting that the uh, vampire chronicles fandom always called them specs which is short for speculations Mm. so they're very clearly saying we are speculating what could happen with these characters we're having a guess. Yeah. And I find it interesting that they were already calling it that. They weren't just calling it fanfic. They were calling it basically our version of ideas because we want to fill in the gaps. Um, And that kind of is quite an unusual thing with fandoms in the first place to be like, oh, we're just... Particularly, like, this fandom, there's a... You literally have characters who are 100 years old. You can fill in some gaps, yeah. you know? <laughs> so it, it, I just wonder whether maybe that's... The other reason is that oh, you're speculating about the history of these characters and and you're wrong because I know the entire history of these characters and not sort of allowing the grace period of just the fans are just doing their own thing and you'll eventually tell them and they'll be right or wrong or whatever, you know? Yeah, and they're not going to give a shit. (laughs) I mean, they care, obviously, but, like, they don't care that their speculation was wrong. Yeah. Um, So there's a really interesting example of this that it's in the, I want to say, Warhammer 40k I'm going to be corrected by somebody. Uh, there's a guy who's been making loads of really interesting fan fiction and fan work, particularly videos about um, a certain character in 40k. Uh, and it's been doing really, like it's been his baby. Like he's really built up this thing. And then the law books came along and changed something and it just wiped out everything he'd done. Mm. It just can't have happened. And he's just like, I, I don't know what to do now. You know? Because <laughs> he's obviously worked on this for years. And I'm like, oh, that's awful like you kind of really feel for that you're like oh you 
you'd filled in all these gaps, all this sort of stuff, and they've just done one thing. And that's just removed everything you yeah, you've worked on. I, I but was... it also means, you know, it, you also still, the work is still there. The work is still valid yeah. and relevant and people still love it. So I, I feel like hopefully he'll continue doing it. That would be cool. But like, I do, I, I can see how that's quite difficult to deal with. I, you know? I used to listen to a, a Star Wars uh, based role, tabletop role playing game. And it was started like, I don't know, a long time ago. But mm. um, the in the podcast, the story was that they were the Rogue One people. They were the ones that stole the plans to the Death Star and were trying to get them mm-hmm. back to the uh, the Rebellion. And so, and then yeah. halfway through them doing the story, Rogue One came out. Yeah. And they were like, well... <laughs> so they kept... I mean, it was obviously like a funny tabletop role-playing game, but mm-hmm. so in it, they kept making jokes about how... God, I hope somebody else isn't doing this same exact thing right now. Like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you could see like people kind of seeing, oh, this would be a fun gap to fill for our fan endeavor yeah, into Star absolutely. Wars or to Warhammer or to interview with a vampire. And then somebody writes something and then you're like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it happens. It happens all the time. I mean, the joy with things, particularly like Star Wars and Marvel, is they have so much expansive universe to play with. You can kind of do anything and then if something else happens you're like ah it's legends though ah it's alternate universe though you know yeah like there is a huge backlog of star wars canon that is no longer considered canon because it's just the legends because disney went "Mm, that's too complicated and uh partially i agree with that they brought in they took the good stuff and kept that uh so you know not everyone's gonna agree with that though fair enough um but it's difficult when you have you as a fan want to you want to play in the playground you know you want to you want to play in the sandpit and then the the person who made the sandpit comes along and just goes mm, no i'm going to do this over here and and all of everything my castle's bigger than yours you know <laughs> i i think fan interactions with creators are cuz i would call this an interaction with a creator i would call mm-hmm. when you write where any fan work you create is an interaction with the media and the creator in some way right um whether you include death of the author or not you are still interacting with them because they did create the thing. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there's a right or a wrong about that. Uh, it, it's just what it is. So, like, I'm not going to yell at people for being like, hey, you're still writing Harry Potter fan fiction. You know, uh, how dare you? Uh, if they want to write Harry Potter fan fiction, they can. I think I, I personally maybe have still got a few little issues about people doing like cosplay from harry potter and stuff because Mm. um seeing it in uh safe spaces what i would consider my safe space like conventions and stuff is a little bit hard but i'm getting over that maybe if they had like um, a lanyard that they were wearing that was like i support trans lives along with it i think that's exactly there's a lot people can do and i think it's the difference again it's the difference between have you made it yourself have you bought the official stuff have you bought a knockoff you know all of those sorts of things come into it and that's it's it's more um, complicated when the person's still alive and making money out of it as opposed absolutely. to like I think that's craft. it. Yeah, I think J.K. Rowling is a kind of a thing. That is a whole thing unto itself, that whole situation yeah. in Harry Potter. It's hard to compare it. But at the same time, like, if people do want to still contain, you know, engage with it in a way that they feel like they kind of, as a fan, they're like, oh yeah, I, I love this thing and I'm going to go and make my little fan, fan works. Go do it go make yourselves happy <laughs> you know there is so little happy at the moment but 
also in this situation where you're you are interacting with the creator one way off point but you are doing that right i think that you're having a conversation and it going back and forth that like a creator can come in and say this is all the work i've done i'm not going to do any more uh, and people could then go oh cool yeah da, da. and then they might come back in and go hey i've made a little bit more though you know here's a and people will get really excited about that but it may also mean that some of those fix and stuff they wrote or made or their art or their cosplay or something no longer kind of makes sense um or it might be that you're working on a cosplay of a character that you love and then the finale comes out and shit goes down and then you have to cry hysterically while you're still making the cosplay for the convention you're going to at the weekend um it definitely didn't happen to me I do think that the the conversation that fans have with creators through their works is is really interesting mm. that you are going we we love this thing and it means so much to us it means so much to us that we will put our blood sweat and tears literally into it in some cases that you are I think it I think as a creator isn't that like the best form of flattery. Yeah, I was going to imitation the like, best form of flattery, you know? As much as you were kind of saying that when I'm, and I'm sure it will happen for you, but like when you were saying that when you when you do publish in your your fiction and you kind of know that this stuff will happen, uh, it might not if people don't love it. I hope <laughs> and people I'm like sure it. it will for you. <laughs> but like, I also have been dabbling in the fiction and the whole time. I'm like, people are gonna hate this. There's there's no way that this is that this is anything. And so if I finally did put it out and people made cosplays for it or had a Reddit thread where they had their theory ideas and someone wrote a fan fiction, I'd be like over the moon about it because I'd be like, oh my God, you actually give a crap about a thing I wrote. Yeah. The funniest thing is that like, because I'm writing it at the moment and it's uh, it's doing the thing with, it's doing the rounds with editors and stuff like that. And I'm I'm starting to kind of annoy agents and, and all that jazz, which is quite fun in a terrifying sort of way. And again, this is, we're recording this, future me might have something different to say right now i don't know um but um i i can see the things that like people are going to be like i can see they're going to ship certain characters and i can be like oh yeah like this relationship people are going to latch onto this and like oh i think people are going to be be like that's really problematic and i'm going to be like i don't care uh, <laughs> it's not they're fine people are complicated um you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm kind of hoping to see things that I've never thought of as well. Like, if it does happen, if people do really like it, all that kind of stuff. We're talking about my own work. I feel very egotistical right now. <laughs> um, you know, it might never happen. But if it did, I would love to see what other people thought about it. I, I would love to be like, oh, wow, your brain. It's so different to my brain. That's excellent. You know. Yeah. But it is the whole thing. I think uh, in this situation, I feel like with fan fiction, people are... It is imitation to a certain extent, and that is the best form of flattery you can have when people want to... They love your thing so much they want to do it themselves. Um, and doesn't mean it's not... There isn't like going to be a human emotion involved in that at some level from both sides, but it's great. I also, like, I love... One of my favourite things about fan fiction, and I think this is probably where we'll end this conversation, is when people mimic the writing style of the writer mm. in the fan fiction. And with some people, it's really obvious. Like, uh, if you've... I'm going to out myself right now. If you've ever read any Jeeves and Worcester fan fiction, it's absolutely genius. <laughs> because they just write extra stories for Bertie to do chaos. Uh, but they they try and mimic the writing style. And sometimes people go a bit too over the top with it, and it's a little bit, like, too much. Because, obviously, they're trying to get that very distinct feeling that P.G. Woodhouse has when he writes. Yeah. 
Um, but when people hit the nail on the head, you're like, oh, there's more? There's more stories? That's somebody else. This is great. And obviously, like, Jeeves and Worcester is out of copyright and all that kind of stuff. So it's a very, again, it's a different thing and, and people can create more work for it. But that's so cool to be like, oh, wow, you you love this thing and you're going to try and make it as close to the original as possible and, and make more of it. I think that's really fun. I think that's really, really fun. Uh, you can see it in, like, if any... There's it's not much Hitchhiker's fanfic out there, but I'm imagining that that must be very stylized as well in the mm. nature of Hitchhiker's. Um and the same is true that like uh, Pratchett fanfiction often they use copious amounts of footnotes because you know that's his thing right is footnotes um, so this kind of stuff it, I, I love those little things that fans pick up on within the thing they love within the text they love and they mimic it into their own works um, I think it's very cool and very interesting and I love fans doing fan things it's great Keep doing fan things, guys. Please do it. <laughs> that's that's why I want to end the podcast, telling okay. people to be positive. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. We're going. We're leaving now. Do you think people have like it. fan fiction of the podcast eventually? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, is that there'll be one ship, and it'll be like Egg and Tom, and not anything to do with us. <laughs> Like, because we talk about them, and then the people are like, who are these people? They're the mysterious like, extra yeah. characters. <laughs> the person who came and closed the door earlier because I was being too loud. <laughs> I do actually I do actually have a way I wanted to end the podcast, because a really exciting thing happened to me this week. Uh, which, again, future Ollie will be like, oh my god, about, because future Ollie knows what's going on. Uh, but my book cover, I got sent my book cover this week. Very and... exciting. So excited. Like, genuinely, it's pretty and I'm very happy with it. I'm really excited for this book to come out. And I'm definitely going to be that that person who's like, hey, you should buy my book. But this will be out by the time the book's out, so maybe I should start plugging it. Oh really? Your books come out that fast. I think so. I think so. I think I could plug it. I mean you might as well. You can probably at least stock yeah. the publisher site and get pre orders or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if you are interested in a book by me about fandom where I talk about Anne Rice, I do talk as a whole chapter about Anne Rice uh, and lots of very exciting other things. I talk a lot about Star Trek, probably far too much, but it deserves its place. You know, they did a lot of work, a lot of heavy lifting that fandom. Uh, But I also talk about like Byron and Dickens and uh, fandom and Vivian. I talk about Vivian, uh, which is I'm excited. Uh, Well, there's a whole little conversation between us. It's cute. It's called A Exploration into Fans and Fandom. And it's coming from Pen and Sword Publishing. So you can go, more oh, Pen and Sword Books. You can search either. Both is fine. Um, and if it's out, get it. If you can pre-order it, pre-order it. It, look, it looks great. I'm really proud of it. Uh, I wouldn't plug it as much as I do if I wasn't super proud of it. Uh, and... It's got lots of really cool pictures and also some cool interviews with some YouTubers and like some academics because of course they're academics. This is this is an academic <laughs> land podcast, um, and I'm really I really hope people like it and they listen they listen to this and they read the book and my rambling hasn't made them be like why would I read that? I'm I'm excited to read it. I'm looking forward to it. Yay! And then they'll be like Ollie, why is it so? What 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 have you done? <laughs> I think we should finish here and we should say a 
big bye-bye to everybody because my brain has literally fallen out of my head. Uh, I shouldn't have gone to a five-day-long Star Wars convention at the beginning <laughs> of this week. That was... I, I no longer have the stamina for it. Oh my god, please end the podcast. <laughs> well, go um, buy or pre-order Holly's book, please. Um, pre-orders actually do make a huge difference, so if it's not out yet I but do. you can pre-order, please do so. Um, and we'll talk to you next time. Yeah. Bye. Goodbye, guys. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Remember to like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast, and do give it a share. Tell your friends, family, and fellow fans and get the word out. You can follow us on social media, links in the show notes, as are some links to further reading. Who doesn't like a reading list? We are nerds after all. Music for this episode was Nowhere Land by Kevin MacLeod, licensed under Creative Commons Attribute 3.0. This episode was produced by Vivian Azamos and Holly Swinyard. Should I attempt to see if I can talk with these in? Uh, apparently not. I'll just swallow them. <laughs> How can I be a vampire without fangs? Oh, okay, no, got it. I got it. I literally can't talk with them in, though. That's so funny. I don't think I could even, like, start the podcast with them in. <laughs> I don't even remember what I bought them for now. I'm assuming a Halloween costume, because I've never cosplayed a character who has fangs. Like, never.